Lord, we love to sing your praises. We love to meet together and sing, as it were, praying in unison to you our joy and our thanksgiving and our worship of you, a worship and a thanksgiving that you deserve in infinite capacity. And so we honor you, at least we seek to honor you, by our words and our humility, our confessions, our delight in your word. Praise you, Father, that you've given it to us. And you have called us in Christ not only to believe in him, but to allow his gospel and his word to change us. So I pray, Father, as we think once again about new attitudes for old relationships, I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to his church. And we give you thanks for it, Father, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. The Apostle Paul has been showing us since the beginning of chapter 3 in this short letter called Colossians, he's been showing us how the rich eternal truths behind our salvation are designed to impact our lives in tangible and practical ways. Our formal theology should be evident in our practical theology, namely how we live. We've been called by God to a holy calling that was established by all three persons of the Godhead, even before the creation of the world. And now that 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 calling has brought about salvation in real time for us, the effects should be readily observable by anyone who knows us or spends time with us. As children of God, we are to be imitators of God. Let me say it again. As children of God, we should be imitators of God. And the way we imitate God most noticeably is by submitting ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. As God the Son and God the Spirit willingly and joyfully submit to God the Father, so Christians are to live with an obvious attitude of joyful humility and submission in relation to one another. Wives, for example, are to submit to their husbands. And husbands, even while they lead, are to sacrificially serve their wives. Children are to obey their parents, even even as we lead them, we are to serve and train them without provoking them to discouragement or bitterness. Such willful humility is the foundational attitude of the home that pleases the Lord. And we have spent weeks on this. But there's more to consider here. Paul is also considered about what happens when you leave your home day to day. In the first century, family relationships extended beyond that of husband and wife, parents and children. Unlike our day, most homes also had the relationship of servants. Maybe not most homes, but many homes also had servants and masters. 
The Roman Empire of the first century was a world of slavery. It has been estimated that there were nearly 60 million slaves under Roman rule during the days of Paul. That means about one-third of the population of large cities such as Rome were slaves. They were servants to other people. And clearly there were some, perhaps many, members of the Colossian church who lived as servants and some as masters. In fact, we don't have to speculate about that at all because in the little book of Philemon, that short letter, we learn that that leading characters of that story, aside from the Apostle Paul himself who was writing it, the leading characters are a runaway slave named Onesimus and Philemon, who was his master. Both of these men lived in Colossae, and Philemon, no doubt, was a prominent member of the Colossian church. Unlike American slavery of the 16th and 17th centuries, there were a number of ways to become a slave under Roman rule. You could become a slave by committing crimes against the state or by being captured in war. But you could also become a slave by indenturing yourself to someone to pay back a debt. In some cases, a man would willingly submit himself to slavery in order to become a Roman citizen. And there were other ways. Elaborating on this topic, R. Kent Hughes points out that it was often true that outward appearances gave no evidence to distinguish a slave from a free person. A slave could be a custodian, not necessarily a cleaning person, but someone who took care of a master's estate. He could be any, hold any number of positions. A slave could be a custodian, a salesman, a CEO. Many slaves live separately from their owners. Roman slavery in the first century was typically more humane and civilized than what we think of in the terrible, terrible days of um, American-African slavery, which was an atrocity, which should not even be compared to what I'm talking about in Rome. Some slaves were men of learning who served in skilled capacities in education and civil service. Some were able to accumulate considerable wealth and influence. For example, Felix, who... Uh, eventually Paul stood before as a ruler in Rome, Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, before whom Paul in Acts 23 gave his defense, was once a slave and had managed the estate. In, In that sense, he was a custodian of an estate, and his freedom was gained eventually, and he, until he was able to hold a political position of power, significant power. In any case, the reality was that the Roman economic machine was firmly built upon the backs of slaves. They were the ones who did all the labor. They were often the teachers, the stewards of households, the farmers, the grunt laborers. And all of them lived in relationship to masters who were often the heads of households and ran various kinds of businesses from their homes. In many ways, masters were the equivalent of modern-day employers, and servants were the equivalent of modern-day employees. Now, clearly, 
This is the bridge between Paul's culture and ours. The application of his words here is relevant to everyone who has a job, everyone who has gainful employment, or is an employer of others. And the question that Paul is seeking to answer is this, how is a Christian to represent Christ at work? How is a Christian supposed to represent Christ at work? What attitudes and behaviors should mark the life of a Christian in the marketplace so as to glorify Christ in his labor. Well, this morning I want to give you four distinguishing marks of a faithful representative of Christ on the job, and none of these are going to be shocking. They're going to be exactly what you think. But for the Colossians, this was new. This was new. This was a literally a new attitude that permeated at least four different areas of how they approached their Work. And before we begin, let's stand together and read this portion of Scripture, Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 4 1. Colossians 3 22. And follow along with me now as I read Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. So the first distinguishing mark of a faithful representative of Christ at work is submission. Verse 22, Paul begins this new topic by declaring that slaves are to be obedient in everything to those who are their earthly masters. Now the word slave here, and by the way, to be uh, obedient in everything, we need to understand that there are other scriptures that talk about the reality that, yes, you are to be submissive. And this is true of husband and wife relationship too, right? You're supposed to be submissive, but only to the point at which your husband or your employer or whatever authority has called you to do either something that is against scripture or something that is clearly sinful. But aside from that, we should be submissive. The word for slaves here is doulos, which is the general term for servant or slave. These are real people who would come to Christ through uh, the ministry of not the Apostle Paul, but through Epaphras, who was a disciple of the Apostle Paul. These were real people who, though they were slaves, they were considered part of the church. They were members of the church. And just as an aside here, and I wish we had time to work on this a little more, but it is instructive to note here how the church, unlike the world, viewed slaves as individuals worthy of respect. And notice Paul is addressing them. He's not addressing masters about what they should say to them. 
He is addressing the servants directly. He's not speaking about them as if they were a commodity or as if they weren't there. He is addressing them directly as bona fide members of the family of God. Where there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, bond or free. In doing so, Paul demonstrates that servants, just like every other member of society, have a high calling in Christ. They have a high calling in Christ. They have a God-given assignment in the kingdom of God through which the Lord Jesus is building his church. They may be slaves, but they are not second-class citizens in the church. In the 1500s, when the Protestant Reformation was taking Europe by storm, there was a word for God's call of a person into ministry. That word is, anybody know, vocation. Isn't that interesting? It was exclusively a word for those who were priests in the Roman Catholic Church or held some office in the Roman Catholic Church. The only people who had a vocation were those individuals who held office in the church. But when the sufficiency and centrality of Scripture was recovered through the Reformation, so was the intrinsic spiritual value of the individual and his labor. This is... If you want to get theological, this is the doctrine of the, of the priesthood of the believer. If you are a child of God by grace alone, through faith alone, you are a representative of God on earth. You are a holy priesthood. And therefore, everything you do is part of your vocation. And Paul is speaking specifically about your relationship with your employer but it involves everything you do, and though this, this particular message in this passage doesn't reference being a student, it certainly applies to those of you who are in school. And I hope that if you are not working and not unable to work, that you're in school, that you're learning how to be a a man or woman of God following the calling that God is giving you, even though you may not know what your ultimate calling is in this world, uh, I would say don't even look for that. Just be faithful. Be faithful in the next decision, and you will be where God wants you. So this was an intrinsic spiritual value of all men who know Christ, no matter what their work may be, whether it is food service whether it's a homeschool mom, a teacher, whether it's the president of the United States, whatever work God has given you to do, that is your vocation. It is your God-given assignment by which his glory is to be set on display through you. So understand that God's intention is that his glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And wherever you find yourself in employment or in retirement or whatever it is, God has put you there for this time so that you would proclaim the excellencies of Christ, that you would set his glory on display through your life. As Jesus said, 
Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God, your Father who is in heaven. In the place where you labor for the Lord, the most obvious place for the gospel to be shown forth are the same. Wherever you work, that is where your witness to the gospel will be clearest. Of course, it's true that not everyone will appreciate your representation of Jesus Christ. You may even suffer for it. I remember when I was uh, probably 18, 19 years old, I got to work, uh, got to work, I keep that positive spin on it, (laughs) at uh, Ocean Spray Cranberry, Uh, because I grew up in New Jersey, and that was uh, one of the major cash crops, and Ocean Spray was right there, and in the summers, I would go work for them, and, and I remember being back in the warehouse pushing a broom, and and uh, I was a fairly new believer and was just so excited to know the Lord and, and uh, thinking about his word. I'd be out there in, in, in a dark warehouse where I could just pray and work. And, and, and I'm pushing this broom, and, and this coworker comes up to me, an older man. He's driving a forklift, and he's, he calls me over to him. And he says, uh, and I said, well, yeah, what can I help you with? And he said, slow down. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're moving too fast. You're working too hard. You're making the rest of us look bad. (laughs) Right? And that was confusing to me. I thought we were supposed to work hard. No. The Lord cares about your work more than you know. In God's household, people work for their employer as if their job were a divine calling to ministry. Think of it this way. God has created us, Ephesians 2.10, for good works. And most of those good works, at least visible good works, are going to take place at work. Most of your good works will take place at work. Whatever your work may be, you you may not be called to be a pastor, but you're called to do something. In fact, in your lifetime, you may experience Many different opportunities for gainful employment. Uh, For me, it wasn't just Ocean Spray Cranberry. I also worked for Little Debbie. I chose my employers well. (laughs) (laughs) And whether it's Goldman Sachs, Lockheed Martin, a mom-and-pop dry cleaning service, or something as lofty and lucrative as becoming an associate at Chick-fil-A, It all matters to God. If you're in the kitchen uh, working at a fast food restaurant, your work matters to God. If you're at the drive-through window, your work matters to God. If you're handling other people's money, your work matters to God. And listen, your work matters to God no less than my work matters to God. This is your high calling to represent Christ by how you work and, of course, how you parent and how you love your wife. We've already talked about those things. Now we're talking about your work. And so, in God's eyes, to rank yourself under your master, that is, your employer, is to rank yourself under Christ by which he is glorified. The word for obedient here is the same word that Paul uses in addressing children of the household. It means to to be obedient means to listen under. 
You're listening to an authority whom you work under, whom you live under, whether it's parents or whether it's your employer. It's the idea of taking orders from a rightful authority and carrying them, carrying them out as instructed. We used to teach our kids obedience, and we would have them say this before we disciplined them. What is the definition of obedience? Obedience is doing what I'm told without challenge, without excuse, and without delay. It's important that they understand what obedience is, but that's that previous sermon. Okay, so you remember that when Jesus met the centurion, Matthew chapter 8 in Capernaum, the man, this centurion, so this is a Roman soldier, uh, he was in charge of a hundred other soldiers. That's what centurion means. And he comes to Jesus, and listen carefully. The centurion's servant, one of his servants, is ill. And what's the problem? This indicates something of the relationship between servant and master here. Because when the servant became ill, the master went looking for Jesus. Because he loved him. He didn't want him to die. And so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, let's go to your house. And notice the explanation that the centurion gives for why Jesus, why it is unnecessary for Jesus to come to his house. He says this, Jesus, I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this and do that. And you know the implication there. Jesus, you don't have to come. All you have to do is say the word, and even the disease will obey you. And remember what Jesus said among all those Israelites? He said, I have not seen this kind of faith in all Israel. And this was the context of Christ being glorified in submission, authority in submission. This is the kind of posture that Paul is calling Christian employees to take. What goal, what goal should the Christian employee have in the marketplace? What should be your goal? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.9 writes this. This is the Apostle Paul, you know, the great apostle. He says, therefore, also, we have as our ambition, what's your ambition on the job? To move up, to get that invitation to the big chair. Here is Paul's ambition. We make it our ambition, whether at home or absent, it means whether alive or dead, to be pleasing to the Lord. It didn't matter that he was the great Apostle Paul. He was under authority. Ephesians 5.10, Paul says, we should be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You see the pattern here? The ultimate goal that should define all other goals on the job should be that our labor would be pleasing to the Lord. There's so much more we could say on that. In fact, while this may sound like a radical proposition to you, especially at our time, the ultimate goal should not even be, are you, are you ready for this? This may shock you. Your ultimate goal 
probably shouldn't even be the, to take care of your family. Why? Because the Lord has promised that he will take care of you. Now, most of the time, he would take care of you through your work. But he will take care of you if you can't work. Just ask Joe Oliver, our former elder, who I don't know if he's here today or not know he's home, probably watching. Hey, Joe. <laughs> uh, Joe, when he was a young dad, came down with a serious disease, and it really knocked him out of the workforce for five years. And I've seen Joe tell that story, never once without tears, you know, with his trembling lip, and he says, Pastor, I never made a greater salary than I did those five years of not being able to work. The Lord provided for all of his needs. If you can work, you must work, right? Those who don't work shouldn't eat, Paul says. But here's the thing. If you're working, your goal should be to please the Lord. And you may think, i got to have more money. i got to have more money. i got to have more money to, to meet all these needs. And the Lord is saying, no, 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 I'm taking care of you. I take care of you. You be faithful. You be submissive. And when you work, your work is unto me. It's a freeing, freeing truth. And I know that a, quite a number of you have been there. The Lord always provides. And Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first... So implication here, instead of seeking those things, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That means set your heart on following the king. Set your focus on obeying the king. He is your sovereign. He is your leader. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Do not fear, little children. God clothes the flowers of the field, though they perish. Will he not take care of you, O oh, you of little faith? Listen, if you understand that your great calling on the job is to please the Lord, who has promised to take care of you, then submitting to your employer becomes a much more reasonable proposition. I mean, what do you have to lose? The Lord has got your back. The Lord is behind you. The Lord is under you. The Lord is over you. The Lord is in you. Christ in you. You want to make an impact for Christ on your workplace? You want any proclamation of the gospel to be credible? Before you begin sharing the gospel verbally, try responding to your supervisor with a submissive, obedient spirit to the Lord. Understand, then, that our primary role in the workplace is to represent Christ, who, by the way, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be clung to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a, what? A 
It's okay, you can say it out loud. Servant. And by the way, doulos, slave. Jesus became a slave for you. And being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because it was his father's will. Therefore, it was his will. You want to represent Christ on the job? Then imitate Christ on the job. You want to represent Christ on the job? Imitate Christ on the job. Humble yourself in obedience to the authorities that are over you. You say, sometimes they treat me unjustly. That's how they treated Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't use a a proper chain of command to address issues that are hurtful and sinful. But it does mean that you follow the right channels, and that you have a humble heart that is evident in the way you're communicating. And so the first distinguishing mark of a faithful representative of Christ at work is obedience. The second distinguishing mark is respect. This is interesting. You could flip over to Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment because Paul, he's writing to two different churches, two different letters, and it's interesting, in my comparison of these two letters this week, they they matched perfectly until they got here, and then Paul says something to the Ephesians that he doesn't say to the Colossians, but it certainly fits in the flow. Ephesians 6, 5, Paul adds a phrase that's not in Colossians, and here's what it says, Ephesians 6, 5, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Now the word for fear here, phobos, could be anything between reverence and terror. And so he's not talking about terror. He's not talking about being terrified of your employer, nor is this word generally used of your relationship with Christ when it says fear the Lord. He's not talking about terror. He's talking about reverence, sobriety, It's the same word used in 521, where Paul begins the section by saying that we must be subject to or rank ourselves under one another in the fear of Christ, or out of respect toward Christ, or understanding that Christ is our king, our authority. Fear and trembling often go together in the text of the New Testament. It communicates a need for seriousness, such as when Paul tells us to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. In this case, Paul is calling for sober and serious respect. Christians should not only obey their employers because it gives them, it gives respect to their employer, but because it honors the Lord. They should not only work hard and obey, they should respect their employer. You say, well, my, my employer is not respectable. And, and you know what? You may say that about certain political leaders as well. And I wouldn't argue with you a bit. Nevertheless, they are the governing authorities. And Christian people don't take matters into their own hands. Now, here's a rare commodity in the workplace 
of Western society, to have employees who refuse on principle to not disrespect their employer. I mean, who wouldn't want an employee like that? An employer who says, listen, whatever you tell me to do, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to do it, do it with all my heart. Because that's what God wants me to do. In Paul's mind, it's not a good name for oneself that the believer is seeking. It's a good name for Christ and his gospel. That's the goal. And that's why Paul wrote to Timothy saying this in 1 Timothy 6.1, All who are under the yoke of slavery are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that, here's the purpose statement, why are they to regard their masters worthy of honor? Well, here it is. So that the name of God, and whenever you see the phrase name of God, he's talking about the person of God, everything that is true about God, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. You don't want your employer saying, oh, you know, I got a couple of Christians working for me, and they're the laziest slobs. I mean, they're late all the time because they're saying, you know, I need to have my quiet time. You know, find a better time. I mean, it is, it is a disgrace for unbelievers, for believers to be disobedient and disrespectful. This was so important to Paul, in fact, that he wrote essentially the same thing to Titus. So he's sending these men out, and he's writing letters to them, and he's, he's repeating the same things in a little different way. I love this one. And he says this, Paul writes to Titus saying, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. You know what pilfering is? Stealing from the company. Uh, that means you don't steal brownies, you don't steal money, you don't, you don't steal anything. Not pilfering but showing all good faith so that, here's the purpose statement, listen carefully to this. Why, Paul? Why? And he answers, so that you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Hence the subtitle of the sermon today. So that you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You see, once you let your employer know that you're a Christian, from that moment on you walk into work, as it were, dressed in the gospel. You are wrapped in the gospel. You're wearing the cloak of the gospel. You will either wear it in a way that honors Christ or you will wear it in a way that dishonors Christ. If you want to honor him, and you should, then be respectful to your employer, even when he's not around. I, I think it's rather unlikely that you would disrespect him to his face, although there are some who would. You're going to be more tempted to disrespect him behind his back. And so the first distinguishing mark of a faithful representative of Christ on the job is obedience followed by respect. The third distinguishing mark of a faithful representative of Christ on the job is diligence. Diligence. You kind of see how all of these go together, and it's not 
difficult to understand. In verse 23, Paul tells us to work not by way of eye service, as people pleasers. You know, you just want your boss to see you working. Just, you know, um, it's, like, uh, it's like, you know, when the boss shows up at the, at the front door and everybody puts their, their, gets their feet off the desks and, and hides their, their, you know, their iPhone. They've been watching movies or whatever. And when he walks in, everybody's diligent at work and nothing's gotten done. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with, listen to this word, sincerity of heart. And here's that phrase again, fearing the Lord. Paul's concern here is that a Christian employee might work hard so long as his employer is watching him, but then slack off when the boss is away. When the cat's away, <laughs> the mice do play. It's a, it's, I always would come back from vacation when Brent was here and Rhiannon was working for us and, you know, and I'd come back vacation and I'd say, how, things, how, are things, how did things go when I was gone? And Rhiannon would say, you know, the cat's away. <laughs> they had fun. Uh, but doing this in reality... Wasting time on the job and acting like you're working when your boss is around is eye service. Paul wants to remind us that sin and righteousness are always matters of the what? The heart. The behavior, no matter what the behavior, is only a reflection of the heart. The work you do for your employer should be of the quality and diligence that the Lord would be pleased with it no matter what your boss observes. The Lord sees your sincerity of heart, even when your boss is not around. And the Lord sees your laziness, even when your boss is not around. I remember a missionary story from my childhood. And um, one of our missionaries from our church in New Jersey, yes, there are churches in New Jersey. Um, this one missionary was working to clear a field on an airstrip on a rather remote island. He managed to pull together from a nearby village about 30 workers who lived there. They brought their machetes and he gave them clear instructions on, on how much of the field needed to be cleared by the end of the day. And putting the men on the project, the missionary went to tend other business for a couple hours and and then after a couple hours, he came back to check on the work, only to discover that most of the men were sitting around, leaning against their palm trees, and, and doing virtually nothing at all. The missionary then explained that they needed to work hard for their boss, even when he's gone. And they all agreed. And so they got back to work. And a couple hours later, the missionary came back to inspect their work, and again, he found them sitting around doing nothing. Now, this particular missionary had a problem. During the war, he lost an eye, and he had a prosthetic glass eye. And in a moment of sheer genius, he gathered them all together, and he said, I've told you repeatedly that I need you to work even when I can't see you, and you have failed to do that. So 
And he reached up and he popped out his glass eye and he went over to a nearby rock and he sat it facing the men and the job. And he said, from this point forward, I have my eye on you. <laughs> and when he came back, a few hours later, the field was clear. <clears throat> Paul's teaching us that we should work as men and women who know for certain that while our employer may not see the diligence with which we labor, the Lord always sees. And as we'll see in a moment, he always rewards. And so we should labor with sincerity of heart. We should work from the heart. Even for someone who you may think is unworthy, your employer, unworthy of that kind of devotion. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The English word sincere here is interesting. It comes from the Latin word, two Latin words, sine, which means without, and sera, which means wax. And so the word sincere means without wax. The idea here is that a dishonest potter in the first century and before, if there was a crack in one of their vessels, they would just fill it in with wax and kind of glaze over it. And a wise consumer who needed a jar, a clay jar, would take it and hold it up to the sun and turn it because the light of the sun would shine through the wax. So when Paul talks about us being sincere, he's talking, it literally means work without wax, work without covering up the lack of work that you are doing. Work. In the Greek, the word, and I won't pronounce it for you because I can't, it carries the idea of generosity and liberality and mental honesty. It's the virtue of one who is free from pretense or hypocrisy. The idea is that the Christian employee who seeks to represent Christ well in the workplace should, should not only be obedient and respectful to his employer, but he should also be committed to producing the best quality work he can give. He's diligent. You don't just show up to do a job. You show up with your heart intact, a heart that really seeks to please the Lord with the quality of his work. Working in sincerity of heart means that we try to make the quality of our work measure up to the Lord's standards. Would you be willing to lay this at the feet of the Lord or put it in the Lord's hands? We don't cut corners or disguise laziness behind the veil of busyness. Is your work worthy of the Lord? Is your labor pleasing to the Lord? The employer of such a man or woman who is working to honor Christ, that employer never has to wonder if his, if his job is getting done or if he's getting an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. It's a trustworthy employee who seeks to do his best no matter what the task. I have a friend of mine who uh, used to be um, a member of this church. In fact, his daughter married my son. This is Grace Steele's dad. Grace Kirk's dad now, uh, our, to our benefit. Um, I remember when he was here and he was uh, wanting to become a member and we got to the part of ministry, you know, how do you want to serve? And he said, I want to clean the toilets. And I went, okay, get at it. <laughs> no. 
I said, uh, well, that's interesting. Uh, why'd you say that? And he said, I just want you to know I'm willing to do anything that needs to be done around here. Uh, had a high paying job, still does, I, I assume. And um, loves the Lord. I was talking to him a week or two ago and I reminded him of that story. And he said, yeah, I remember that. And I said, uh, he said, you know, there's a backstory to that. I said, well, tell me. He said, well, I was going to Southwestern and I was working for a pharmaceutical company. I was just grumbling, complaining the whole time. Just wasn't happy with the work, wasn't happy with my boss, wasn't happy with the pay. And I was just grumpy, complaining, and I'm going to seminary, right? And he said, most of the, most of the students had left. The halls were relatively empty. And I hear this woman singing, and she's coming out of the men's room. And she's got a bucket and a mop. And she's walking down the hall singing. And Matt addressed her and said, hello. And she turned around with a big smile, and Matt said, how you doing? She said, I'm doing fantastic. And he was like, really? <laughs> I mean, you were just cleaning the toilets. And she said, every day with Jesus is grace. And I have nothing to complain about. I have a good job, and I have a wonderful Savior. And he said, I got in the car and cried. He said, it changed my life, changed my attitude about work and about service. So ask me in the church, what, what do you think your ministry should be? I'll clean the toilets because it's not too lowly a work when you're seeking to please the Lord. I hope Matt's not listening to this because he'll tell me I got it all wrong. But And let me just jump to the fourth one, and it's loyalty. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He's kind of repeating himself here. It's a significant thing to notice here that the word heartily is not the same word as heart, cardia, which is used in the previous verse. The word heartily actually means from the soul. Uh, the word there is psuche, or sometimes it's pronounced psyche as in psychology, um, psychology, right? You know what the word means? It means study of the soul. Once again, this is about having a new attitude for an old relationship. The loyalty Paul is calling for is not one that is motivated by money or personal advancement or corporate greed. No, it's the kind of loyalty that's energized by the gospel, it's a loyalty to the exalted Christ that benefits one's earthly employer. And such a worker doesn't need prompting or threatening to get him to do the job. He's glad to render service to his employer because his heart is really trying to serve and please Christ. And so he's loyal. It's a worker who desires to see his employer succeed in his business. He wants the company to prosper. He's not trying to stick it to the man. He's trying to do everything in his power so that the man, his boss, will prosper. He desires to see the blessing of the Lord upon the company or the business, and so he's happy to give his all. 
It's his delight to be obedient, respectful, diligent, and loyal to his employer. No mutiny, no stealing from the company, no cutting corners. Now it may be, you might be thinking at this point, wow, this is a pretty tall order. It is. Well, where do I find motivation to do work like that? Well, look at the next verse. Paul knew you would ask. And so he concludes with these words, verse 24. You do this knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What's he saying? Well, before I tell you what he's saying, let me tell you who he's talking to. He's already identified them as slaves. And guess what slaves don't get? They don't get an inheritance. And here Paul is saying, work like this, because it doesn't matter that you're a slave. You are the beneficiary of the inheritance. All that God has promised for you in Jesus, both now and for eternity. You get a sampling of it, a down payment of it in the Holy Spirit who drew you to the Father. And so you work hard, not merely for altruistic purposes. You're not just solely focused on your employer. You also know that God is generous. God is always the giver. He's always the giver. Even when we suffer, he is always the giver. And whenever we get promoted or we get some good thing, I had good news this week, a couple of points of good news this week. It's from the Lord. And he had no compulsion to do a single thing good for me. And yet he does. You think your company offers a good retirement plan? Think about the inheritance. Inheritance. You ain't seen nothing to it. You've laid eyes on what Jesus has in store for you. Finally here, and there's one more thing, because Paul throws a final word in, and it, and it, it, I just don't know why they put the chapter break where they put it, right there in chapter 4, verse 1. But he now is speaking to employers. Makes sense, right? Just a short note to employers. Throws a final word to them. For those of you who are employers, the Lord has a word. You see, just as believing husbands and parents are called to rank themselves under those they lead, so too you, the employer, are called to rank yourself under your employees in the fear of Christ. Think of the best employment scenario you've ever had. I I would bet that you were working for someone cared for you and offered you things that you didn't expect and let you have time off when you needed it and pushed you hard but not too hard and you got the sense that they were really interested in you and your well-being. That's the kind of employer God wants you to be. Your employees' obedience, respect, diligence, and loyalty ought to be matched by similar characteristics in you as you seek to serve Christ in faithfulness 
so your employees may respond in kind. You are to serve Christ in faithfulness to them, no matter how they respond to you. Now, that doesn't mean it's not appropriate on occasion to fire someone who just needs to be fired. It's not what we're saying. But in your day-to-day relationship with your employees, they should know that you care about them. You should listen under them. You should rank yourself under them. It doesn't mean you're not in charge. You are in charge. But how are you in charge? Beloved, this is so important. You see, in the end, both you and your employees, you and your children, I remember telling my kids so many times, listen, you have to obey because your master, the Lord, requires you to obey. And I must lead and discipline you because I am under the same master. And I have to obey when you don't. You see, in the end, both slaves and masters are both under authority. We are under the kingship, the lordship of Christ. And he shows no partiality. That's what he says here. You don't get extra credit in heaven because of your status as an employer. The question will simply be, were you faithful to represent Christ where you work? Were you faithful? Beloved, Christians, and I've been saying this for, what, five weeks now. Christians proclaim the preeminence of Christ, which is what Colossians is about. Christians proclaim the preeminence of Christ to the world by how we follow and lead. May we follow well to the glory of Christ, and may we lead well to the glory of Christ and for our own joy. Let's pray. Lord, these are timely words, and all of this, I trust, is accurately based on your word. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. We, we realize, though, the propensity within us to be unfaithful in so many ways, in all of these ways. And yet, Lord, you are so gracious to us. And when we fail, you pick us up. And when we confess, you forgive. When we feel like we should be rejected, you embrace us. Remind us that you died on our behalf. You paid the ultimate price so that we would be sons and daughters of God. Help us, Father, to respond to to these realities in faith and in love. Not as though we owe you. You have forbidden us for thinking such. But rather as those who love you because you have first loved us. These things, these truths, Father, have devastated us and changed us. And they need to continue working in us. So we praise you for this reminder this morning. And may we go from this place more determined than ever to please the Lord, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. May all of it be to the glory of our Savior Jesus, we pray in his name.